again, I want to welcome you also to this weekend and let you know that um, I've been kicking this idea around for a couple months about this place called Radiotopia. It's sort of my fantasy land where everything is radio and everything is very good. And I didn't know that it was going to look like the inside of the Western River North, but this weekend at least it does, and I really mean that. It's, it feels like we, we're there, so welcome to Radiotopia. Um, I also wanted to once again mention we're selling these t-shirts. You might have noticed them in the lobby. It says listen in Braille, so we'd love for you to take the word out into the world with you. Um, and it's a great conversation piece. So, um, let's see. One of the clearest and most obvious honors and privileges of working on this project is the sheer amount of audio we listen to all year. And interestingly enough, over the past 12 to 18 months, we've noticed this growing trend in work that sort of categorically falls between fact and fiction. It's work that's not so much based on truth, like traditional documentary, but almost placed on truth, built up from the realities and facts that are collected by producers out there. Uh, one producer who has effectively employed this style since we've known her, um, this blurring of the lines between truth and story, was the winner of our first ever bronze prize back in 2000 for her story, Von Trapped, which I hope all of you have heard. Natalie Kestetcher continues to produce radio programs that play with reality, including stories, for instance, about a lost umbrella, as well as the history of hair removal. We couldn't think of a better person to talk with her about her work than a woman who herself knows a bit about playing with the documentary form while teasing information and fact from story. Natalie hails from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Sydney, and Susan Stone joins us from KPFA in California, where she heads up the Drama and Lit Department. So please welcome them both as they lead us, perhaps, and I hope, by way of some lovely detours, through this next panel, Loose Tongues. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be taking orders after this for those t-shirts. We feel like we're at some 1-800 number with these headsets on. <laughs> First of all, condolences from San Francisco to Chicago on the outcome of the uh, World Trade, uh, the World uh, uh, <laughs> Series, the World Series uh, playoffs. Condolences. Somewhere inside each writer, it's been said, live two characters, a crusader and a gossip. They want the story to further some kind of truth, possibly a personal truth, and they just have to tell the story. So here we are, a room full of interpreters, storytellers, journalists, writers, artists, with all manner of storytelling, and the wonderful thing, of course, about this gathering is we get to hear so much of that kind of storytelling. And as Johanna said, so many of us do like to play in those curious spaces between fact and fiction. It's a wonderful place to play. There's sort of an art of trespassing even in that area in terms of what you do with the truth and how you create it. That's all by way of saying, which is why I'm so pleased I was invited to uh, introduce and interview Natalie today, who plays with an extraordinary cast of characters, very vivid plots as well, stories that we'll hear, uh, we'll hear some excerpts today, uh, and time allowing, we'll hear quite a few. 
stories about the loss of things and memory, a story of a tow truck driver's in spirituality, uh, stories about verbally and hormonally challenged teens, knitting with dog hair, and other hobbies. As Sir Hannah said, Natalie was a Third Coast Award winner for Von Trapp, her story about a woman obsessed with the sound of music and the Von Trapp family as well as things Austrian. But Australia is her origin. I think it's a wonderful coincidence that she comes from Marubra by birth. Marubra. Marubra, which means? Windy Hollow. It's the other windy, the other, the other windy place. Yeah. So bringing her from yeah. one windy hollow to another one here, yeah. which is lovely. Um, Natalie is presently a feature maker on the Radio Eye program in Australia at the ABC, and she's been led there by a succession of daunting studies, studies in communications, history, and drama. The jobs that she's had that have stood out for me in particular, and possibly for her, are those of selling shoes, working at a hairdresser's, um, teaching English to migrants, magazine editing, working in a youth detention center, and most recently as a marriage celebrant. And I have to ask you right off the bat if you see that as a detour from radio or if that's going to be furthering your storytelling. Well, I've only just finished the course, so I'm not a registered ma marriage celebrant yet, but if you're planning on getting married, you can see me afterwards and <laughs> I'll do you a deal. Now, is that a job that in it also includes a funeral? You um, celebrate a funeral, funeral yeah, yeah. You can you can do funerals. You can do baby namings. You can do renewal ceremonies. So you're good to have around the yeah. house. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do the big events. When do you begin to officiate? Um, as I said, I'm not yet registered. I first need three references. So again, if anyone <laughs> wants to offer. <laughs> Well, the yeah. nice thing is this is a great place to shop for jobs, you know, and, and we're all trying to advance our careers yeah. here a little bit, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or leave them behind, depending on how things go. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good segue to start with a marriage story. The first thing we'll hear is a story that asks a few hard questions but comes up with some rather unique solutions. To whom can you turn if your relationship has soured, if your dreams and aspirations conflict with those of your partners? Here is what one couple did. It's called The Karaoke Counselor, and we're going to hear two segments, parts one and two, from the beginning and the end of the piece. Four, four time, okay? A one, a two, a one, two, three, yep. two, two, three. Leon, I hope. Leon, when you sing, you make sure that you sing from your heart, not from your voice. Leon, I think I should echo. I wasted enough time today. We've got an album plan together, okay? Leon? For this couple, I think one of the stumbling blocks may be that the possibility of intimacy has been scared. And so when things get too close, I think both of them, their tendency is to withdraw, to back off and to isolate. It all started one night at the movies. American Beauty, to be precise. A film about a couple, rigid with the flatness of a marriage that had seen better days. 
I was there with my husband of only nine months. Only nine months, yet it could have been us up on that screen. Leon fantasizing about other women. Me having it off with real estate agents. I stole a sidelong glance at him, wondering if he too was finding similarities between the couple before us and ourselves. But no. His head was tilted back slightly, and his mouth was agape. He dozed, oblivious. I did some work with a colleague in looking at bringing together music and therapeutic modality. So we did a number of different programs trying to look at music therapy and trying to reach people through a different medium, that is through music rather than necessarily through the traditional psychotherapy modality of words. As we sat in that cinema, I wondered if he knew that I had deceived him from the start. I had used him. I was a songwriter, a songwriter with no money, and he was a hobbyist, a hobbyist with an inheritance. For some people, I think music has the capacity to resonate and touch something that is beyond words and that certainly has a therapeutic potential. It's never difficult to get a hobbyist into a new hobby. And before long, Leon was setting up his very own recording studio and I was recording my very own songs. What are you doing? But those heady days were numbered. Are you ready, Leon? And it wasn't long before Leon became resentful. You ready? What are you doing? Singing from your heart, not from your voice. He started to complain that by setting me up to pursue my passions, he was unable to afford any of his own. He had become a hobbyist with no hobbies and I was bearing the brunt of his frustration. Leon, you're putting me off. Can you stop chewing? Is the reverb on? As I composed and recorded my song, Leon would eat. And he ate. And he ate. And he ate. Sounds of my He became largish then larger, and then just plain enormous. More reverb, We'll just do the last, the last bit, okay? I'll come in, we can drop this in after my course. A few months later in the relationship. Could karaoke really save our relationship? It is a context it is a place in which to explore different ways of being and to provide a container around which or within which points of connection, points of intimacy can start to be explored and played around with and hopefully sustained. The second night was worse than the first and I started to feel like a failure. Oh, so much for carrying a therapy. It's stressful, isn't it? You don't see me love so male part. You 
hardly talk to me anymore when I come through the door at the end of the day. <laughs> I remember when you couldn't wait to love me. You used to hate to leave me. The sort of songs that people have access to in karaoke can be the very romantic, incredibly feeling, you know, the torch song experience. You don't sing me. You don't sing me love song. lined with karaoke booths, each filled with happy groups or couples singing their hearts out. The group right next to us seemed to be particularly jolly, so when Leon popped out to purchase yet another snack, I popped in to find out why they were so happy. They told me that they normally sang together as a gospel choir. As I surveyed their shining faces, I wondered if they were believers. <laughs> One of the singers handed me a business card which read, Jesus is just a phone call away, and said, call any time. I went back to my booth and sang a few more songs with Leon. This song um, I want to dedicate to the memory of how it was before our communication broke down. Oh, okay. Okay. It's called The Way We Were. Do you know that song? Yeah. That's a good song. Okay. It might be better if you don't eat chips all the time. <laughs> but our joviality was forced and our songs empty. I decided to call Jesus the very next day. Hello. Jesus is on. Oh, hello. Is that Jesus? Tell him what you want. Oh, Jesus is on.
and if it hadn't been for Melody House, I wouldn't have found it. And Leon? Well, he decided to leave the singing to me, and he bought the hobby farm that he'd always wanted, and he's so happy that he no longer seeks solace in the sea. can take the singing. How's the singing going? Um, oh, I still sing. I'm not in the choir anymore, though. <laughs> You've got new business. Yeah, new business. I, I like the fact that she opens with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a very nice setup with the lyrics. Is this the real life or is this just a fantasy? So I, it begs the question, is this your real life with twists? Um, essentially, yes. Although I, I would say that the characters, Leon, and Natalie in that piece are, they're not exactly the way we were. Um, but it's, it is based on a situation we were in. And um, basically I wanted to do an experiment and that was to see whether a couple could come closer by singing together. Because, you know, there are all sorts of things that people are told to do when they're having relationship difficulties. But singing wasn't a thing that I'd heard suggested and I thought well why not give it a go so we did the karaoke experiment husbands can come in handy that way he's often a conceit in your pieces it seems yeah he's, he's been in quite a few of my pieces but um, mainly because when I first started making radio programs I didn't realize that you could actually pay actors so I, I just thought you had to you know, use Maybe whoever you was work. around. <laughs> and um, so as a result, uh, well, he, he ended up appearing in quite a few of the programs and so did I because I was basically free. <laughs> but you put yourself on the line often in your pieces and I, I wondered if you would just talk and we're going to play some more to perhaps elaborate on that. But um, how is that for you? It's sort of a personal essay, um, maybe uh, some kind of a narrator issue, an unreliable narrator. Talk a little about that, if you will. I don't mind putting myself on the line, but I'm not very happy putting other people on the line. As long as it's only me that comes out looking a bit foolish or whatever, it, it doesn't really bother me. Um, but a program like that, for example, had to be rejigged a bit because Leon, that's not his real name, did, did have a few problems with it. He felt it was a bit much. Um, as you said, it is, we are talking about an unreliable narrator. That's, that narrator is a sort of scripted narrator. It's not, it's not really me. So I don't feel that compromised by that. It's a part, it's a performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is a performance, mm -hmm. to an extent. Mm -hmm. A performance based on reality. Yeah. Yeah. Where it becomes a truth. Yeah, I mean, whether or not everything or tr is true or not, that's, that's another story. But 
Well, there's such a pleasure in the script, I think, so often in terms of, um, in fact, maybe you could, you could start here a little bit. What, what do you find comes first in a piece like this, the experience or actually um, the story that you begin to write out, out of which you create some kind of experience? Uh, you, I mean, there's obviously the idea comes first, but usually I would do some recordings before I start to write. Mm -hmm. so recordings or interviews. Um, but in the case of something like karaoke, well, we spent quite a few unhappy nights in uh, Melody House, which was the karaoke place where we did our recordings, and I kind of wrote around what came out of that. We started with a lot of optimism, and uh, it soured <laughs> over a period of time. Um, but yeah, that made it kind of easier to write the script around it. Well, one thing we'll hear in the next piece as well, and in uh, so many of the works that you've done, certainly Von Kraft uh, came very much out of music, um, but it's, it's your love of music, it's your interest in music, and it's the extraordinary uh, degree to which you go to get music whose um, uh, very subtle implications often because it won't be a, a tune we'll recognize necessarily. Because of the bad singing. <laughs> if not the bad singing, then uh, perhaps it might be some uh, unusual instrumental version of something often very common to the rest of us. For example, we'll see in this next piece if anyone catches, um, is it blowing in the wind? No, candle in the wind. Candle in candle the wind. In the wind. Uh, and what its significance might be in this next little piece. Uh, this excerpt is from um, Tamagotchi Mother. Tamagotchi Mother is the name of it. Is there a satisfaction in having a relationship with something that might outlive you? I don't know how many people in this room know what the Tamagotchi is. I'm sure some of you were born since the Tamagotchi toy. The, ele <laughs> <laughs> the electronic parenting uh, story in this one is about a relationship, uh, definitely with something that didn't live very long. But uh, some of the burning questions addressed in this next piece, in which Natalie is the definitive uh, Tamagotchi mother, um, is a piece that was made in 1997. We'll hear that now. Can I just say sure. one thing before we start? Um, does everyone know what the Tamagotchi is? If you don't, is that uh, a yes or no? I thought we should maybe let it be revealed. Oh, okay. All right. Sure, 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 sure. Okay. All right. <laughs> Part of the mystery. Phil's not his usual cheerful self today. He's demanding more food and games than I can supply. He also seems to be totally incontinent. How jealous I feel of those mothers who confront up at baby healthcare centers for support. Virtual motherhood is very isolating. Eating about five or six times a day and demanding more and more food um, is it, um, does it vomit after each time it feeds or? It's going to the toilet a lot. Okay. It's going to the toilet. got diarrhea? Or? I think it's got diarrhea. I think it's got okay. diarrhea. It, it goes to the toilet about ten times a day. But it doesn't vomit at all? It has to be fed as much as it wants. And who told you this? Uh, it, it said so um, on the instruction leaflet that came with it. The instruction leaflet that came with your chicken? Yes. Well, where did you get your chicken from? A toy shop. You got your chicken from a toy it's shop? It's an electronic chicken. I should have mentioned that. It's an electronic chicken? Yes. Ah, yes. well, I've never heard of an electronic chicken before. Has it got another name? 
Tamagotchi. Tamagotchi. What's that noise? What's that noise? Phil? Phil? Phil, are you okay? What's happened? Oh my god, there's an angel flying over the screen. Look, he's dead. What have I done to him? Look, look, he's dead. The angel's there. What happened? Oh my god. Why didn't you do something when you heard it beeping? Well, you heard it beeping. Why didn't you press some food or something? You should have his death came so suddenly, about 15 seconds of desperate beeps. By the time I got to him, it was too late. He was just 15. There were so many what-ifs going around in my mind. What if I'd played with him more? What if I hadn't let him sleep in his excrement last night? What if I hadn't been in selfish pursuit of a world record? What if I'd fed him fewer snacks? Phil is no more. I let him down. Gloom and guilt hang over our home like a veil of clouds. Goodbye, Phil. Well, I think it's really important to give your pet a nice farewell, which is why I'm here, because I, I sort of want to look around and sure. see how you do it. Well. Yeah. I won't laugh at that because we have cremated um, kangaroos with your dingoes, with your birds, snakes, rats, the whole lot. Rat? We have here. Yeah. Mm. This is the call room. All right. We have in here. Yeah. Whiskey. Whiskey's Whiskey. a bull terrier. Bull terrier. Whiskey passed okay. away this morning. Natural causes. Oh. We're actually playing Moving the seal in the Tamagotchi, pressing the button to get it started in its life, is a, a big decision. Do you have any qualms about beginning the life of the Tamagotchi? Yeah. I've, I've had my Tamagotchi for over a year now. My mm. advisor. I still haven't turned it on. I'm just waiting for that special moment, but... I keep putting it off every weekend. I think it's going to be this weekend, and I just can't seem to do it. I'm a bit worried about that. I guess the moment has to be right. The psychiatrist. The birth. I mean, I've never given birth before. So I do want it to be special, you know. So from what you've heard about it, you've got this picture of what it's like, obviously, that it's got to be something special. You see it as being, you know, something you're going to develop a relationship rather than a simple game. That I, I know exactly what yeah. you feel. When I started, I had a lot of qualms, and I, I knew the minute that I pressed the button that I was going to have to have a relationship with this little critter. And that, that that relationship wouldn't be a satisfactory relationship. And I put it off as long as possible, but then I had to do it. We had to have that relationship. How did you know it wasn't going to be satisfactory? The basic reason is because they have a very limited life. And you know, you're bound to outlive them unless something goes terribly wrong. See, that I see as an advantage. I'd much rather have a relationship with something that's not going to live for very long than something that's going to outlive me. Well, I've felt like that a little bit, but the, um, the little bugger's still alive. You know, months down the track, it's still going. Well, hang on a minute. Let's make one thing clear. Yours is not a Tamagotchi. Okay? Well, yours is like a Tamagotchi. It's an imitation one, and I know they're easy to keep alive, um, but I, I do have to say this because I'm setting out to break the world record in, I mean, if I can ever turn the thing on. So, you know, don't sort of casually say that yours has been alive for months. Great, I feel like I'm harboring an illegal immigrant. 
<laughs> just the cheap imitation. So how long would a real Tamagotchi be expected to live for? I've heard that um, 27 days, which is 27 years in Tamagotchi terms, is the world record. I'm not afraid so much of the relationship ending. I'm afraid of the demands. Well, I hope you do turn it on soon so that I can introduce my baby to you. Maybe it's much the same as um, having a child. I mean, I've been quite afraid of doing that as well, so maybe this is just a continuation of that fear. Yeah? Mm. Mm. My mother would say so. <laughs> I don't think you realise how precious bringing up children is. The mother. And this stupid little toy, I mean, honestly. It's crazy. It's um, it's so unreal, so unfeeling. You don't get any love from this. Um, it's like, what shall I say? Having a drink when you're not having a drink. What do you have? You have a Clayton's, or you have a lover who's an inflatable doll. It's not real. I really believe that you want or that you need, both of you need, something extra in your life. I know you haven't been married that long, but time is marching on and I think your husband would love a child and somehow I think deep down you would love to give him one and share the experience of bringing a, a human being into the world. It's probably a good practice for you to sort of, you know, develop a relationship, know what it's like to um, be responsible for another. Yeah, I, I suppose in that sense, but um, look, it even took quite a while to get around to making a commitment to get a dog. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, it is a big commitment because you can't just abandon it. Or, no. yeah. Have there been any cases of people abandoning? Will your human partner be present at the birth? He's not interested, you know, and I think maybe that's got something to do with my reluctance as well. It's like we're not really in it together. I think it's more likely that I'll have close female friends at the birth. My poor little bastard, Frank Tamagotchi, had a, a very lonely birth in the back of a, a Tarago in a car park outside Toygaras in suburban Brisbane. A ray of hope flickers in the sky A tiny star lights up way apart All across the land dawns a brand new morn This comes to pass when a child is born First of October too many conversations, too much advice. What was I doing? What were you doing with that toy? I was setting out to break a world record in keeping Tamagotchi alive. No, but I was also interested in, you know, the fact that these things had become so popular. And it was a way of looking at other bigger issues. Now, how many people recognize the Tamagotchi now that you've heard this piece? Okay. The little, the little thing. Little things. This story about this dark comedy. I, I just loved it about uh, electronic parenting and infant mortality. I don't know how much comedy there is there, but this, the way that you're able, <laughs> none. The way that you're able to to do this is just wonderful and.
very playful. And in fact, it, it brought to mind uh, a Christopher Guest movie, almost, the way these characters are assembled. And I don't quite know who's perhaps improvising where their scripts, what's real, what isn't. It doesn't matter to me. But I wanted to get your opinion about how you assemble these characters, what they thought they might be doing in this piece. Well, this is one of the earlier programs that I made, as you can probably tell by some of the, the, the recordings. They're a bit rough. Um, so it was made at the time, as I mentioned earlier, when I didn't realize you could pay performers. So I just basically... We need to get back to that at some point, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 has, it has its advantages. Um, none of those characters were scripted. None of those characters were scripted. They were all... Um, I mean, they knew what was going on, but they, they improvised. And, you know, obviously people like my mother had a ball because she got to say what she always wanted to say <laughs> without being, you know, stopped. So, um, yeah. Is there fiction covering a real pain somewhere? There's always that issue of those pesky aging eggs. What happened? Oh. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I did, I did make it at a time when, um, you know, that was an issue not only for myself but, you know, other friends of my age. So, sure. yeah, yeah, there were some real concerns in there, but it was mainly, it was mainly playful. But there were some. There was a serious underbelly to it as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what we're playing in the first part of uh, this morning is uh, two pieces that have just tremendous comic uh, wealth and richness and story and a lot of heart. And I, I want us to get to the Silver Umbrella, which again demonstrates an extraordinary range in terms of your taking on a, a, a very um, historic um, uh, task and how we uncover it. But before we do, I think. There's something I need to ask you about Australian airwaves versus what is in this country, and you're mentioning paying actors, which many of us would like to do, or paying talent or paying support is very difficult in this country. There's also the hardening of the categories in this country in terms of where things end up on the air. We heard in the earlier session um, that very, very important um, question being raised, which is we're doing art, but who will hear it outside of this room? And I want to ask you about the airwaves in Australia and how they're faring. You're at the radio eye. You have the freedom, it seems, in this wealth of production that you've done and brought to this country um, to do, would you say, anything you want? What are your freedoms in terms of creation and in terms of broadcast? Um, well, the program that I work on is a dedicated features program. And by features, I mean we play all kinds of features, documentaries, docodramas, uh, docu docu mockumentaries, soundscapes, whatever, but um, it's, it's an hour a week and there's a certain amount of freedom but we still put in proposals and we discuss ideas with team members and I mean there is a brief. Um, the brief I suppose is to yeah look tackle some big issues but in a, an interesting and experimental kind of way. You, um, yeah. I wouldn't say you have a social or political obligation to deliver certain stories to deal with a news issue or you handed a mandate or mission. Is there a mission at the Radio Eye that you need to keep in mind when you're producing? Our mission is to make interesting and engaging stories. It's not a news, it's not a news slot, it's not a documentary slot, it's a feature slot and it's it's dedicated to presenting interesting features, interesting stories um, that engage 
that's kind of the main, the main purpose of the show. Well, you mentioned the mockumentary, and some of you may have seen the transcend.org um, exchange that some of you may have had with her when Knitting with Dog Hair was featured there a while back. A mockumentary, as you have described it. Uh, did you catch a little help from people based on their frustration that they were duped in the end? Did they feel duped? Um, about where you were going with that piece, and then asking you that question, maybe you can describe uh, the piece a little bit and um, talk about those reactions. Okay. It'd be nice to play it, actually. I don't know if we have time to play. Just it's on one of those separate CDs, um, Knitting with Dog It's just a dog. And we can play the opening two minutes, if you can do that. It's a horrible family story of what I think are unusual historic proportions, Knitting with Dog Hair. That gorgeous little animal over there, I could see a nice muff, a very nice muff. Okay, those poodles over there. Well, they're small poodles, so they would it would take a while to collect the hair. They're very frisky, fun animals. So I'd say a nice scar. Spaniel's one of my favourites, I must say. They're very loyal dogs, um, so maybe sock. Pugs, now, I know you should never say this, but I personally never got on with a pug, so I don't feel I should say. My, my intuition would say you'd, I don't know, you'd make a pair of gloves. Beautiful border collie, uh, lovely luminosity. I'd say a fez. Knitting with dog hair began at the time of the Spanish Inquisition in the 15th century. When the Jews of Catalonia were told that they had to get out, most saw Eastern Europe as their only option. But the cold, how would they deal with the cold? For those of you familiar with Catalonia, you'll realize its close proximity to the Pyrenees Mountains, and that where there's a Pyrenees Mountain, there's always a Pyrenees Mountain dog. The Jews of this region, being pragmatic as well as good with their hands, decided to spin the hair of these dogs and quickly knit them into garments. Garments suitable for the unrelenting Polish and Russian winters. The Pyrenees mountain dog is one of the um, most popular so dogs. So you were asking me if I had a few problems with this one. Mountain dog. The Jews of Catalan and Spain are eternally grateful. A little. How about that? Oh. Duped, tricked, 
Uh, and I, huh? You had a website in there. Did they feel upset about that? Yeah, people, people went to the website and they wanted to find out more about this, you know, the fellow at the beginning who was talking about feathers and garment creation. So people were a bit upset about it and uh, we finally decided um, that should it be rebroadcast we might have to back announce, you know, warning this did contain elements of fiction. Um, yeah. It's, it's too bad when you have to set people up uh, at all like that. We were talking earlier about the, the sometimes the need for a disclaimer. You were saying uh, that that actually is something the radio I asked you to do? Um, not normally, but with this one... Um, there is no website. <laughs> well, well, well what, the way we handled it was just to, in the back announce, say that it did contain fictitious elements. And it's probably the only program I've ever made that I would consider a mockumentary. Um, I don't really call the others mockumentaries. Mm -hmm. mm. We have a chance, we're, we're short on time a little bit this morning. There's a piece that I hope we can get to now called The Silver Umbrella. And what comes to mind when I hear this piece is something I read once, which was written about a book that had particularly moved the critics. And it was about the exhilaration of plot. And I thought that it was a very, um, I thought that it was a, a lovely way to put uh, into some kind of summation what is a very tender and delicate weave of stories. Before we hear this piece, I wonder if you could set it up a little bit and, and tell us about the oral layers that we're going to hear. They're quite an yeah. interesting weave, but I think to put it in more of an historic context, you can okay. perhaps describe some of this to us. What, what links your search? Um, okay. I mean, there are really three stories in this story. Um, one of the stories is literally about a lost umbrella, uh, an umbrella that I bought for a friend. Oh, no, I promised to buy an umbrella for a friend, bought the umbrella and then lost it on a train in Germany. Um, the, there's another story which is the story of Ernest Hemingway's lost manuscripts. Um, the story goes that his first manuscripts were lost on a train. And the third story uh, is about my father. I had a, a tape that I made about 10 years ago, an interview with him. And it's a story not only about him talking about his childhood, but about me trying to get him to talk about his childhood because I'd grown up not really knowing what had happened to him, but then stopping him and turning off the tape before I really got to know what I wanted to know. So I guess the connection between the three stories, um, I'm kind of missing out lots of bits here because I'm aware of the time, but the connection between the three stories is that uh, it's kind of about searching for something that's lost at, but not necessarily wanting to find what you're searching for. This um, segment is on cut number seven, track seven for you in the back. Um, before we go, I just have to ask you this, uh, to this piece. Do you find you think primarily in sound or story when you're assembling pieces, when you're coming to a, I'd to a topic? I'd have to say, say story. I'd have to say story. You have a lot of sound in this. You yeah. have a lot of music in most of your pieces and the wonderful banter and exchange between your 
your characters, but this piece truly had, I think, the densest um, bed of sound in terms of um, what was evoked beyond story, yeah. into story by sound, yeah. but beyond yeah. language into, into uh, the story. Yeah. And this is the point where the umbrella is, is lost. So delays. This was the fourth train I'd taken and the fourth to be late. I thought German trains always ran on time. The thought of an inefficient German rail system made me smile. I wondered if the fate of my father's family would have been somewhat different had the trains not run on time in those days. kept on asking me about, because I used to fantasize, and you would think that I had some full feeling that things are going to happen, and I always used to tell them about the thunders, the wild beasts, the faraway places, about Siberia, about Africa. You would think that I, I had some full feeling that one day I'll, I'll be sent there, I'll be... I felt relief when we finally crossed the border. It had been a nice few days, but I always felt more relaxed about leaving Germany than being there. I picture it this way, and then he skips off the train. Lucky that guard had told me about being in the wrong carriage. She'd been traveling all night and was not in the best of humors, not in good humor at all. It always happens in Europe. You find a good seat on the train, only to find that you're in the wrong carriage. And if you don't hurry, you end up in the wrong part of the country, or in the wrong country full stop. There's no room in the first-class carriage, not even in the wagon-lit, and the man across from her kept rubbing up against her leg and smoking those bloody gitanes. He'd been eating bratwurst also, or knockwurst, or one of those bloody German sausages and wax paper with cabbage and mustard and kartoffelsalat, and wiping his hand on his shirt. Quick check. Coat, bag, tickets, silver umbrella. She had no plans to travel, or at least not in this manner and direction, but her husband sent a telegram. He had telephoned and written, and then he sent his telegram at the worst possible moment, as always, so importunate and needy that she told the Count she'd better go. 
should have to tell Ed face to face that what he was was finished and their marriage a mistake. Oh no, don't tell me. In my rush to get from carriage six to carriage seven, I'd left the silver umbrella behind. My first reaction was to rush back to the carriage I'd left, even though I knew that it was pointless. That carriage had, after all, broken away from this carriage and gone God knows where, but I had to check anyway. What else could I do? Sure enough, I got to the end of carriage six and found nothing beyond it. Had I exited, I would have simply fallen out of the train. But how to look for something that you know you have no chance of finding? One. The next day. Two. The day after that. Three. Immediately. To the exclusion of all other matters and without consideration for or reference to the personal feelings of others, those friends and family members and business associates who seek to help or hinder, with an obsessive seeming inattention to those who are searching for some other suitcase, and with a total self-absorption and absolute consequent disregard for the way such a hunt might or might not affect them. Until I find it, fool. No, I'm not thirsty. No, I'm not tired. No, I'm not hungry. No. Four. By advertisement, with a reward, systematically, under the bed, in the closet, on the shelves at the end of the compartment, on the roof racks naturally, in the baggage cars ready for service or being cleaned at the Gare de Lyon, the porter's wheelbarrow, and all along the platform and inside the station again. Five. Philosophically, what's gone is gone, done, done. Six. Is the twelve steps will fail to suffice? Nor can the stations of the cross, with their desolating pauses in the process unto Calvary, stand surety for or as an emblem of this pilgrimage. Whosoever seeks will not by definition find. Who loses will not always gain. Seven, not at all. I tried to be rational. It was, after all, only an umbrella, and I had my health, and I came from a peaceful country, and... Shit, this umbrella was important. I comforted myself with the knowledge that the German rail system would be bound to have a super-efficient lost property department. My new mission would be to get the umbrella back. Hello, do you speak hello, English? Hello, can I ask again, please? Uh, hello, is that lost property? Yeah, hello, can you ask again, please? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Ah, great. Hi, um, my you. name is Natalie. I'm calling from Australia. Sorry, I couldn't understand you. Uh, ich heiße Natalie. My name is Natalie. Yeah. And Did you make a report? I made a report. Can you give me a report? My father was a Holocaust yeah, survivor and a storyteller. Four, eight, I think he was in Siberia during the war. Six. I had a friend called Stasik. He kept on listening to me with such a... Uh, with such hungry eyes, I kept on telling him how, how I, I am in a, a Siberian tiger and wild animals were chasing me. And one day, a bear dropped out and he ch chased away the wild animals, which was the wolves. And Umbrella. the bear took me into a, a very deep 
very powerful dramatic bones in that story. Uh, sort of uh, history in ground. Incredible oil. Beach. I think we both get is there was a it, it made me think of Scheherazade almost the fact that the power of your father's storytelling not only had such a significant influence on your life but that you you really were um, finally getting his complete story at last and it you were in this terrible emotional quandary as you said which is what would happen if you got it all down at last and your reluctance to do that he's had a tremendous influence on you as a storyteller it seems yeah um, I mean what you didn't get to hear there was um, that I did actually stop him before he got to the end of the story. He actually checked with me. Uh, he said, shall I keep on going? And I said, no. And you can actually hear the tape recorder being turned off. And at the time of recording that story, I didn't realize that he was actually dying. So basically, once that tape recorder went off, that was it. And I didn't get the story. Um, so the bit that you heard where he was talking about bears and tigers, that's the kind of stuff I grew up on. And um, I don't know, maybe that's why the, 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 the question of the difference between fact and, and fiction is not such an issue for me. I grew up on a diet of that. I never knew what was real and what wasn't. And half the time when I make the stories, it's the same thing. Well, I think that's, I think that's really um, also the beauty and the power of, of what you are able to do, not only in your personal life and bringing these stories to life, but in bringing them to the airwaves. I think that we're often saddled in this country with um, uh, these obligations in how much of our story, again, is true, what furthers the mission, if not of the radio station, then of um, our obligation as uh, storytellers to, to advance some information. Um, I know that what has become the most uh, wonderful release um, of programming to the airwaves have been those um, uh, very important and rare programs, um, Hot Soup, which I'm afraid is uh, no longer, and which has folded so many wonderful programs into it that do not have an obligation of length or of, of uniquely being um, fact-based. Uh, many other programs, KPFA, Pacifica Radio has many of them, and, and the Radio Eye, the listening room. And of course, many of them make it to the mainstream airwaves in this country. But where these programs go and how these stories can impact people, um, so much about it is, will they be able to hear them at all? And I hope that we can get many more of these stories of yours on our airwaves here, because uh, they're also, it's about length. It's about length. We're often, very often, a format bound. Will they fit into the module, or can they just play to the length they are meant to be, to tell the story in their uh, necessary length? What other influences do you have? You have, uh, in one piece we weren't able to hear to what, uh, today, Betwitched, um, extraordinary literary uh, infusion, and I want to know what other literary influences you might have or influences beyond your father's storytelling. Um, well, up until about 1990, I can't say that I knew very much about radio at all, so I can't talk about great radio influences. I kind of grew up on television, and the only radio we had in our house was bad talk back. <laughs> um, then in the 90s when I started to study communications and um, I started listening to radio, I, I heard about people like the Kitchen Sisters um, and thought, 
but they were incredible. Um, there's a woman here today from Australia, Eurydice Aroni, and I heard some of her stuff in the mid-90s and thought that was incredible. And um, yeah, so radio influences didn't come till quite late in the piece. In terms of literary influences, I was very attracted to the absurdist writers. Um, and also Russian satirists like Gogol, who I've used in some of my pieces. Um, the more absurd, the more attractive to me. Mm. You've got a piece that uh, is a soundscape that you've just created called Not Spain. We don't have time to hear it today. There's a line in it I love, which is about finding yourself on a bar stool at the end of the world. Um, are you going in a new direction with soundscapes? Um, and maybe you want to even distinguish what they might be for you separate from some of these other features. Yeah, I mean, I, I have in the last few years tried to change the, my style of program making a bit. Um, the programs that you heard, the first two programs were earlier programs, Karaoke Counselor and Tamagotchi Mother, but I'm trying, I'm actually trying to make documentaries as well. I'm finding it difficult to stay with the factual um, and I find that even when I make documentaries I do like to weave in different elements. I use, uh, yeah, I use a lot of readings and I use a lot of performance even if the topic is of a more documentary or factual nature. Um, soundscapes, it's not really my thing, not strictly speaking, but something like the one that you mentioned it also has a strong narrative element, um, even though the sound carries it. Yeah. I know, I'm surprised even as, as uh, old as I feel like I'm getting in the business, um, there's still those sounds that, although they may have tremendous cliché appeal, continue to uh, do something to me. You know, rain on the tin roof, crickets in the rustling grass, and the railroad. And of course, in the Silver Umbrella, there's a wealth of the railroad track, and there's a great um, seduction in that sound and I think that's what links so many of us is our love of sound and how that draws us first to the story. I need to close our segment but before I do I understood that if we're not too hungry we can take a few questions from the floor which would be wonderful. I also just want to tip my hat to transom.org and the other thing. Websites you allow for the multimedia um, opportunity to meet people like Natalie on the web. That's really because radio is not as alive and well as it should be in the American airways. It's very much alive and well on the net, but I'm hoping that radio stations can pull things back down and get them on the ground again because that's, um, that's where they belong as well. So I'm very grateful the web has made so much of this stuff as vivid and accessible and interactive as it can. So we're very lucky that we have these pioneers who have taken us to, the, to cyberspace. Do we have time for... No. It's time to eat. Ah. It's time to eat. Okay.